Hello, this is Dr. Brian C. Morrison, founder and president of the William J. Watkins Senior Educational Institute. I would like to welcome you to our podcast, The Watkins Education Report. The William J. Watkins Senior Educational Institute was founded in 2008 as a nonprofit 501c3 organization with the mission of ensuring that all students, especially those in underserved and under-resourced communities, receive the best education possible. To find out more about our services and programs, visit our website at www.watkinseducation.org. This podcast was created for the purpose of providing parents, students, educators, and the general public with news and information about a variety of topics impacting the education of our youth. While our focus is on the Baltimore, Maryland metropolitan area, we discuss a broad range of topics that we hope all people will find useful. We talk to educators, parents, students, policymakers, activists, politicians, and others to shed light on many issues that impact the education of our youth today. We'll be right back in a moment for today's podcast. Welcome back to the uh, Watkins Education Report. I'm Dr. Brian C. Morrison. Uh, coming back to you with today's topic, which is the college admissions process. Uh, we're going to be talking today with Anthony Harold, who is a college-bound counselor with the uh, College-Bound Foundation in Baltimore, Maryland. And we're just going to go over, you know, what the college admissions process is, what are some of the best practices, and some of the things that parents as well as students should be doing in order to make sure that their their process for getting into college is a smooth, effective, and efficient one. So, uh, folks, at first, I'd just like to welcome you to the Watkins Education Report, Mr. Harold. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Morrison. Happy to be here this evening. Okay. Um, first, why don't you just, just give us a little background on yourself, your background with, as far as your relationship to education, and tell us a little bit about what it is you do now. All right. Well, thank you, and, and, and welcome to this uh, great opportunity and podcast. Again, I have, uh, I've been in public education for 38 years. I've had an opportunity to teach social studies, uh, system principals, retired as a principal, 10 years ago and uh, realized that I had a whole lot more left in the tank and that I really, really enjoyed working with teenagers and had this opportunity to work with the College Bound Foundation in Baltimore. We serve uh, first generation Pell eligible students and we help them get into college. I guess that's the short and long of it. Mm -hmm. And so happy to be here this evening. Uh, one of the things that I start with when working with parents and students in the ninth, 10th, and 11th grade is the importance of parents being the leaders in the home and helping to shape and guide in preparation for their students to go to college. And so that starts with some simple things such as requiring the reading of classical literature, whatever your definition of classical literature is, requiring that to be read in the home. So, so what what you're saying is that the the first step in this process is to set a foundation 
um, set a foundation in the household, in the fa in the family, with the idea of of at some point we're going to be looking at going on to to higher education. Absolutely, developing that love for learning and love for experiencing many different things. So that foundation, yes, begins with reading, uh, begins with having conversations while we're watching television shows and movies with simple things as making predictions. Well, what do you think is going to happen next? And explain why you think this is going to happen next. How do you think that character feels? Uh, why? What evidence is there from the novel? What evidence is there from the personality of the student you see in the booth or the person that you see in the movie? These are all important thought-provoking concepts that when students begin to learn to think beyond just factual information, again, that foundation is being built for higher order thinking skills, which is what colleges are looking for. And we'll have conversations about that a little bit later on. So, so, so this is more than just, you know, filling out applications and going on college tours and things like that. It's, it's, it's starting with a it's really about, I guess, what you're getting at is the is is beginning to delve into the purpose of going to college and what you're going to get out of that and setting the foundation for that. And a, a big part of that is what I'm hearing is that it's it's about thinking, it's about um, critical thinking, it's about thought and thought processes and and coming to understanding things bigger than just mere factual consumption. Absolutely, and and developing that love for learning uh, and that's an important role of parents is to help their children see beyond what's in front of them and develop that thirst for knowledge uh, and develop that thirst for exploration that thirst for taking chances and making mistakes and learning as much from your success excuse me from your errors as there is from your success so 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 I'm I'm hearing here then at the you know this this is a part of a, a much larger process than just okay I'm I'm a junior or a senior in high school and I now need to think about going to college. This really goes into something that that is key to my research and my work is you know the purpose of education, particularly for those of us in the African American community. Uh, why are we why are we engaging in these educational activities what are we supposed to be getting out of school absolutely absolutely so, uh, and what we've what we've seen over the course of our careers both you and I and again I've been at it for quite a while and we've seen it with our own families is that when we create that foundation when we take our children to the museums when we ask ask our children why do you think rather than what do you know and what justification can you offer for why you believe in certain things, that creates a life of thoughtful interaction with other human beings, thoughtful interaction and manipulation of concepts. And again, thoughtful interaction and manipulation of data, machinery, uh, so, so again, you know, you know, we don't want to delve in this too long because I think one of the things we're trying to do is is how to apply to college. But right. again, that you know that when that foundation is in place, uh, then when we start applying to colleges, 
the similar questions can be asked as to what schools are you thinking about and why and how would that school be a good fit for you rather than having the conversation about the prestige of the college or having conversations about what college does my GPA and SAT scores match up with thus what to which colleges do I fit in terms of my transcript and SAT so so you're getting to the point of you know what college do I want to choose as opposed to what college is, a, is available to me absolutely and that, that process starts off very early absolutely. and I, I imagine there are there are parents who are listening to this podcast and who are saying you know I, they're at the point where okay it's now time to put the pencil on the paper or, or the fingers to the keyboard uh, more contemporary vernacular um, but they're they're saying wow I wish I I had you know really begun this process a whole lot earlier on absolutely and and but also because the same parents probably have younger children and we start from where we're at we cannot yeah. we cannot change the past but it, what we have right now are opportunities to really think about how do we want to lead our families how do we want to lead our teenagers our middle schoolers our elementary children and our toddlers, our infants and toddlers, and, and all of that is the, are the opportunities that take place in the present and in the future. So we're, we're really talking about higher education as, a, as, a, as just a part of the ongoing being of a life, being a lifelong learner and, and, and starting off at that early age. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and we're talking to someone who sometimes when I'm talking to my students, when they hear that... Uh, I went to school and took graduate courses for 20 consecutive years after undergraduate school. They go, wow, well, again, it was because of that thirst for learning and that joy and an enjoyment for learning started very early for us uh, growing up as children. And it really helped shape what was going to happen in my present and my future. Now, we know, we know too that you know, everybody's not going to go to graduate school for 20 years. Or even and, for and, five. And, and, and that's okay, too. That's okay. Uh, and, and everybody's not going to, to seek a four-year institution uh, of higher education. And that's okay, too. But this, uh, for, but this particular broadcast, this particular podcast is addressing uh, is addressing the college admission process. Yeah. So let's sort of get into... Um, what that process is. What what is it that? Uh, how do how do we navigate all of that? Because okay, we we've got the foundation, or we don't have the foundation, and it's now, you know, leaving my junior year of of uh, of high school, and I'm coming up on it's getting to be time for college admissions and all of that. Um, what should I as a student? What should I as a parent? be looking to do it at this point okay so let's start with the junior year because that's that's a critical next step most colleges are looking at the junior year as probably the most definitive of who is the student and that's also the great opportunity for juniors to begin to build the relationships with teachers because it's the teachers in the junior year who typically will be writing the letters of recommendation and it's also during the junior year that teenagers 
should be conducting their research, meeting with colleges when they come to their school, and also going out to visit colleges. And finally, during the junior year is when the students will be starting to take the college entrance exams, the ACT and the SAT. So that junior year is critical in terms of building, taking those last steps towards senior year. So now we're into the senior year and you've the first step. So there are different parts, different components to the college application. And let's talk about them. The first is the application itself. And so now the senior has decided that this is my list of colleges. We'll talk about that in a second. But one of the steps, one of the components of the college application is are the letters of recommendation. The counselor will write a letter of recommendation and so will the teachers, one or more. And so now the student is going back to their junior year teachers and requesting letters of recommendation. They may have to go all the way back to sophomore year. And understand this about letters of recommendation. Colleges aren't necessarily looking for the teacher with whom the student received an A. They're looking to hear from the teacher who knows the student best and can speak about the student different from what is indicated on the test scores, the, again, the ACT and the SAT. So we have the letters of recommendation that they've gone back to the counselor and the teachers to write. We have the test scores from the ACT or SAT that they took during junior year. Before we get on to, to the test scores and all of that, let's, let's hang out with this, this, these letters of recommendations for a minute. Uh, as a student, um, who sh who, how should I decide which teachers to, to ask? Um, and what should I look for in that letter? Am I going to get to see that letter? Before the, the 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 teacher submits it, should I give the the teacher or the counselor information that I want included in the letter? Um, and you know how will the how will the whose letter is more important, the counselor's or the teacher's? Should I even have a counselor letter? All right, good question once again. And so, typically, every single student will receive a letter of recommendation from the counselor. And the counselor letter of recommendation really takes a look at the whole student, speaks of the student's family, family background, how the student has navigated throughout the three or three and a half years that they've been at the high school, their relationship to their peers, their relationships to teachers, their engagement in activities outside of the classroom, whether it's work, whether it's caring for younger siblings at home or whether it's extracurricular activities and that information is important and so it's critical that the student meets with the counselor and has a few bullet points that they can share with the counselor either in writing or in the conference so that the counselor is able to write a wonderful holistic and give holistic letter and give the colleges a broad picture of who is this student so you ask the question about teachers the difference between the counselor letter and the teacher letters is now the colleges are looking from the teachers to hear more about how does the student relate to their peers in an academic environment and specifically with the content to which the teacher taught and the students were expected to learn. Okay. So well, the teacher letter of recommendation should look different. It's more 
quantitative, but it also speaks to how does the student overcome it may speak to how does the student overcome challenges academically in the classroom? How does the student learn? How does the student seek help if needed? And how does the student work with their peers in a specific academic environment? Again, that's an opportunity for the student to write a few bullet points for the teacher as a reminder. Because remember, even though the teacher has a 180-day intimate relationship with the student, the teacher also has 150 to 200 students to whom they've had to work with throughout the year, and they may have forgotten some things. Okay. Let me, let me ask another question about the letters of recommendations before we go on to the other parts of the application. Um, when we're looking, for, we're looking for a well-rounded, someone who can give a well-rounded understanding of who we are, is it okay to uh, look outside of the school to get letters of recommendations, let's say from a, from a coach or from a, a community member, let's say a minister or something like that? The I, colleges interested in, in hearing from those folks? They may be. However, I caution because the most important letters in our conversations with colleges throughout the country, uh, the most important letters are the letters from the academic teachers, the core academic math, science, English, social studies, and modern languages, uh, and from the counselors. So yes, a letter from the coach would be wonderful. But please ensure that your sons and daughters have letters from their core academic teachers and counselors. Those are the letters that carry the most weight when colleges are evaluating student applications. Okay. Can we, can we have two, do colleges limit the number of recommendations they want? Some schools do. For example, the University of Maryland wants one letter from a teacher and the council letter of recommendation, and typically that's it, uh, whereas there are other schools that request two. So understand this about letters of recommendation. If you're a school like the University of Southern California that reads 84,000 applications per year, it's, and they have a limited staff of about 30 it's quite problematic for them to have to read six or seven letters of recommendation from every student. It won't happen. And so the wise decision that students make should be around which teachers know them well and understand how they've grown in the classroom. And those are the teachers with whom the student should be requesting letters of recommendation. Again, it doesn't have to be an A. It could be a, stu a, could be a teacher where you receive the C but you started out the year failing the course, and that teacher saw incredible growth throughout the year and saw how you accepted the challenge of figuring out how to be successful in the classroom. That's what colleges, those are the kind of stories that colleges really want to hear because that speaks to how the student will do when they are challenged. Notice I didn't say if, I'm saying when they are challenged academically at the undergraduate level. That, that challenge is going to come. It's, it, the challenge is definitely coming. It's only a question of when. Okay. Now, so we've, we've, we've gotten a letter of recommendation. Let's, let's go ahead and move on to the, the test scores. What are we looking for with the test scores? I know a lot of, a lot of students, as well as parents, they, they stress their kids, and the kids, in turn, stress over, you know, getting that, that top ACT score, getting that top SAT score doing, you know, and, and they go through all kinds of, of 
efforts to do well, pay all kinds of money to take courses and, and spend all kinds of hours of, of study and practice tests. What, what, what are, what's, the, what's the deal with the, with the standardized testing? So colleges more and more are recognizing just what you said, that, uh, that the SAT and the ACT are standards that have been used in the past to make predictions, but it's not the only standard that they're using. So SAT and ACT scores are important. There's, make no doubt about it. And there are strategies that you can use in order to improve your scores. The best opportunities are typically found with organizations like the Khan Academy, which is a free online service, uh, including a Khan Academy app that drills down and looks at students' PSAT scores and first SAT scores to help the students review and prepare and do better. Uh, what we do know about the SAT is the, that, the, uh, that the more time that's put into preparation, again, using strategies such as what are taught through the Khan Academy, the more time that's put into that preparation, the more likely the scores will improve. But we do have to say that it's not the only thing that's used, and colleges are more and more throughout the United States recognizing uh, that the SAT is just simply one predictor. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about a holistic evaluation of students later on. But they are important, and we should put an emphasis on them. Another important strategy, this comes back to what we talked about earlier. When we talk about preparation for the SAT, one of the foundations of the SAT and the ACT is reading and writing. And that goes back to what we talked about earlier in terms of preparation and helping your child develop effective literacy skills through reading and writing early in life. So the SAT is the second major component. So we've talked about the letters of recommendation. We've talked about the SAT. Some schools place a greater emphasis on the SAT scores. Some schools place a lesser uh, emphasis on them. But it's not the only predictor, and all schools understand that. The third component is the essay. So again, we have great opportunities for students to share who they are as persons. And this is the student voice, the essay. So, so the college application has many components to it. Absolutely. There's the there's the the so let's go over that very quickly. Okay, so go ahead. So there's the application itself, the name, the address, phone number, uh, what school you attended, etc. So that's one part. Uh, there's the letters of recommendation. We're about to talk about the essay. There is the AC. There are the ACT and the SAT. Uh, there is the transcript. Uh, the students work from their first three years. And for a number of colleges, they'll even look at the first half of the senior year. So there's the application, letters of recommendation, the essay, the SAT scores, there's the transcript, and there's the payment. Okay, let's let's go ahead and, and, and tackle each of those, and then we can sort of talk about uh, timelines. 
All right. Okay. Yes, so, indeed. So the that. essay is probably the one thing that creates more stress than anything else for teenagers. Because this is their opportunity to write about themselves, but they've never been asked to talk about themselves previous to this moment. They've never been asked to write about themselves. Uh, and it's a huge challenge. The students who do it well do not offer a resume because colleges often ask for a resume as part of the application or a list of high school activities. And so the essay gives students an opportunity to talk about a specific thing and offer colleges an insight into, and quite honestly, an intimate insight into who are the students and how they might overcome a hurdle in life. So the, this or, essay, or, the, the essay you're talking about, is it is it a generic essay? Does is, do ever, does every college require the same essay? Or they do they differ in some kind of way? Absolutely not. So colleges offer a student a menu of questions that they could answer about themselves, or they offer the students an opportunity to pick a topic of their own choosing to write on a topic that they've created. So here's another question. Can you give us an example of, a problem of you've solved what some of those essay might questions be might be? It could be an intellectual challenge, a research query, or an ethical dilemma. Anything that is of a personal importance, no matter the scale. Explain its significance to you and what steps you took or could be taken to identify a solution. Here's another one that I think uh, that, that I've enjoyed reading from students. Reflect on a time when you challenged a belief or idea. What prompted you to act? Would you make the same decision again? Uh, so here's, here's a third one. The lessons we take from failure can be fundament, fundamental to our success. Recount an incident or time when you experienced failure. How did it affect you? And what did you do, what did you do to learn from the experience? So these types of questions are looking to challenge students on two levels. First, they're looking to see, is this a thoughtful student? Uh, is this a student who is able to reflect about, them lives, about their lives and to really make a decision or review what has happened and how might they have changed uh, an experience that occurred earlier in their life? So that's the first thing. But then the, another thing that they're looking at is their ability to write a cogent essay. Something so we, that's we well thought. We don't want them to be all over the place. And Absolutely not. You, uh, and so it's important that when we start writing our essay to put ideas on paper. One of the things we've learned is that when you think out loud on paper, you're able to get out some first thoughts and ideas that will help create a workable document. But make no mistake about it. Colleges know a first draft from an eighth draft. They can, because they read tens of thousands of essays every year. They've been trained to read effective writing. And so something that's rushed through will look like it's been rushed through. Something that's been edited three or four times where students have had an opportunity to think it over carefully, they'll know that. 
And when we talk about editors, we're not talking about parents editing. I will, I, I seriously advise students to look beyond parents. Talk to your English teachers, talk to a mentor, talk to a counselor, or even talk to the colleges to which you're applying and try to ha engage the admissions officer in a conversation about your essay. They love when students ask for feedback from them. So what happens as a so, result so, of that... So you can, you can call the admissions office and speak to a, a counselor and say, hey, this is what I'm writing. Absolutely. And they, they'll, they'll respond and engage you in a conversation. Let me tell you, these folks work 15, 16-hour days, and part of their job is to engage students. And so one of the best ways that they found to sell their school is to create a relationship with that student. And so they look forward to helping teenagers write their essays. So, so really, we shouldn't be looking at, you know, the admissions, the admissions counselor as the, as the gatekeeper, but they're really shopping. They're shopping for the best students. They're, they're not only shopping for the best students, they need the best students. Uh, and that's their job. Uh, it's sort of like Walmart. If, if your job is to sell 10 television sets and you're only capable of selling six, then quite honestly, Walmart's going to look for a better salesman, hmm. saleswoman. So similarly, the college so, admission representatives, they're really looking for reasons to admit students. They don't want to deny students. It's their job to admit them. But they also enjoyed the whole process because they've been through it themselves. And let's face it, adults who work with teenagers, they want to help teenagers meet with success. So when, we, so when, when parents and students are going to all these college fairs, uh, it's not just the, the parents and the students who are shopping around for a college. The colleges are also shopping around for the, the students who are showing up. And, and if you're a viable candidate, uh, then they're, they're really trying to, I guess this is recruitment. They're trying to recruit you. They're trying to get you on their team. Let me tell you something. If, if you know Mike Krzyzewski and uh, some of these other big-time college basketball coaches, it's the same process. Uh, students are looking at the colleges, but the colleges really are trying to recruit mm -hmm. students to their school, and they're looking to recruit a diverse group of students, and we'll, and we'll talk a bit more about that diversity later on, but they're, not, they're looking for diversity of thought. So when they have opportunities to read essays, really what these essays are doing is showing the differences among students, and colleges get excited about that. Different ways of thinking, different experiences, different uh, activities that students have been involved with. All of these things come out in the essays, and that creates a great deal of excitement with the recruit with the recruitment teams. Let me ask let me ask you this. Maybe you can sort of demystify some of this process for us. Uh, you know, the, the student writes their essay, they complete their application, all the different components of it, and they, they send it in and it goes away and then sometimes later they get a letter back. Well well what happens in a, and I guess we're sort of going out of, out of order here, it's probably more appropriate for the end of this, but what, what happens in the interim? What are those teams doing? How are they, they 
do it? How are they going through this? We talk. You talk about they're looking for a diverse group of of students. You know, I'm I'm imagining that they have some kind of gathering where they get together and they look over applications and they're thinking about who are the kids we want to have, who are the students we want to have in the class of 2020 or 20, I guess it's 2022. What do we want that class to look like? There is a silly little movie that is inaccurate at a number of levels, but part of the accuracy, the name of the movie is Admissions, but part of the accuracy is around the recruitment and the evaluation process of students. And so after the applications are submitted, uh, you have the first reader, typically a first and second reader. And so those two readers go back and forth over an application. One of the readers and the major reader is the recruitment specialist that's assigned to the high school. So they review the application and they share it with a colleague. And upon agreement, they pat, they then share that application with an admissions committee. So there's a first read, and once the application gets outside of the first read and makes it to the next level, now we have a team of maybe 15 to 20 people who the first and second readers present the student to the team. And they present all of the highlights, the positives about the student. It's a wonderful process, and they, they go around the table, and they have discussions about the student. Uh, the team really queries the first and second readers as to why this student would be a good fit. So, so it's, it really would behoove the student and the parent to develop a relationship with that counselor that's assigned for, for that school. Let me tell you, I share this with students every single day. Your best friend essentially becomes the recruitment specialist or the college admissions officer, whatever title they use for the college to which you've chosen to apply. And it makes a great deal of sense to send them emails, to share, share with them successes that you've had, uh, and to ask questions of these admissions counselors or recruitment specialists. Uh, so th that's, that's really your opportunity to give them more ammunition to sell you to the committee. A absolutely. Okay. Uh, you right. When you remember a face and a name, we're, we're all human beings. And so when you have a relationship with a person, you there's a tendency to advocate more so for that person because mm -hmm. you know who that person is. But also, one other thing. When you develop that relationship with the admissions counselor, you're sharing with that admission counselor, this is my school, this is the school to which I want to attend. That's called demonstrated interest. Many colleges evaluate students, and part of that evaluation is, is the student interested? And so we've had students in the past that are at the school to which I work that have been admitted to top schools all over the country. But one of the top schools chose to waitlist the student simply because, and they said it, they told us, well, the student never emailed us and the student never visited. And that put them on the waitlist rather than being admitted. But yet that student was admitted to six or seven other highly selective colleges. So that's so, part of the feedback that we're sharing with parents is that it's important for students to visit. It's important for students to let the colleges know 
that they're interested in attending that school. So, so that whole idea of demonstrated interest works on a number of levels. Right. Absolutely. Okay. Let's let's get back to let's get back to the the application. So we've gotten through the the basic background information, who your name, address, and all that good stuff. Uh, we've talked about the uh, the essay. We've talked about the test scores. Where where are we now? So we've got the application form. We've got the transcript. We have the test, the council letter of recommendation, uh, the teacher letters, and the essay. The only, the last step is the payment, the fee waiver. And so... But let's talk about the transcripts a little bit for, for a moment. All right. Great. I'm glad that you brought that up because what the is, transcript what? is... When college is looking at the transcript, they're looking at the quality and the rigor of the academic courses. So again, we come back to the earlier conversation about preparation for high school through reading and writing and exposure to outside activities. Now the students in the ninth, 10th, and 11th grade have to make choices about courses that, they've, that they're taking. So, they're, so colleges now looking at the transcript are looking at that, not just the grades that the students achieved in the courses, but the quality and the rigor. Are the students challenging themselves to take honors and advanced placement or gifted and talented classes? Are the students challenging themselves and taking, rather than taking six phys ed classes because they need electives, are they taking maybe three and taking three academic electives? If the school is offering French 3 and honors French 4 or, or AP French 4, are the students choosing to take that? If, are there opportunities to take environmental science? We know that in Maryland, for instance, you're required to take three science classes, but if the school offers eight, are you challenging yourself by taking those? So they're looking at not only the grades, but the quality and rigor of courses that students have an opportunity to take. So I, so therein lies the, the weight of GPA, which is also shown on a transcript, GPA and class rank. Right. How, do, how do those things weigh into the overall process? And so I do want to say that many schools are moving away from class rank, but the GPA, there are two GPAs on the transcript. The first GPA is based on a 4.0 scale for most schools, and it's based on the A, B, C, D, or F that you received in a course. But then if you're taking honors or advanced placement courses, for instance, an A in advanced placement course is worth 1.5 quality points as compared to just a, a straight unweighted GPA of an A being one quality point. So how that's translated on a transcript an A is a 4.0, but an A in an advanced placement course is a 5.0. And you can do the math when you begin to add 10 courses at 5.0, then their GPA is, is 5.0, as opposed to their unweighted GPA of a 4.0. We're, we're talking about mathematics, so the uh, but bottom line is, higher quality points, which is based on taking honors or advanced placement courses, is looked upon highly by colleges. And so we encourage our students 
to challenge themselves. So why is that important? Because we are what we do. The best predictor of what a student will do in college is what they've done in high school. And so if a student is willing to challenge themselves as a teenager, then they're going to challenge themselves as young adults as they matriculate from the ages of 18, 19 to 21 or 22 through college. Okay. All right. So, so a competitive transcript is one that doesn't necessarily have a 4.0 GPA. You might have a 3.5 or less, but you have taken, you've been taking challenging courses throughout where you've shown a progression towards more challenging and rigorous courses. Absolutely. So at the school in which I work, we have students, and I'll just use the example you gave, we'll have students with a 3.5 unweighted or cumulative GPA, but their weighted GPA will be a 4.6, 4.7 because they've pushed themselves really hard and they've taken advanced placement courses and they've taken honors courses throughout. Uh, the other part of, and, and I advise parents regarding this, birds of a feather flock together. So if you find yourself taking courses at the advanced placement or honors level, you're surrounding yourself with students who are taking academics seriously. Uh, they, and they love the challenge of academics. So what happens is your child is in that same class and teenagers typically rise to the occasion of the challenge. I've seen this throughout my 38 years of education that when you, and, and I see that athletically, we see that in all spheres of life. And so let's just use athletics as an example because we see incident, incident after incident where we see a high quality athletic team when they're facing a team that is not of their ability, they drop down to that level. But they rise to the occasion when they play someone at or above their level. And so similarly, that behavior we see in the classroom. We see students who might have achieved C's in average classes, but now you've placed them in an honors course and they've moved them. And they, they're surrounding themselves with students who are pushing themselves. Next thing you know, they're achieving B's or maybe even A's. Howard County has very interesting data on that. They've discovered that students in advanced placement or gifted and talented courses, they earn A's. Students in honors classes earn B's. Students in standard classes earn C's, and students in remedial courses earn D's. So what we know is that it's based on, you know, when, when teenagers are pushed, they rise to the occasion. So we encourage parents throughout uh, starting in the ninth grade to look to see what are some of your sons and daughters' interests and ask them to push themselves to the limit with support. And that's the key. Throughout their career, part of our role as the leaders of the family is also to provide the support. Mm -hmm. So we will see when our students are falling, that's when we wrap our, round, our arms around them and provide them with the extras that they need in order to be successful. Uh, that, that brings us to the last part where the parent support is really needed. Yes. And that's in, that's in the payment, the okay. application fees. Right. These, these things, <laughs> you might want to go, you might want to attend 10 different colleges, and you might want to apply to 10 different colleges, but that might cost you $500 to apply. Well, you know, I'll just use this example. The University of Maryland's application fee is $75. 
And so if you can imagine yourself paying 75 here, 50 here, 35 there, and let's just use as an average $60 per college application, and you're applying to 15 colleges, now we're talking uh, a down payment for admission to the college. So again, with the support, parents should be supporting, but the work of the college application is the student's work. We occasionally run across parents who are doing the work for the students, and we put a halt to it, and we speak to the parents directly because the, it is the teenager that's going to college, not the parent. In terms of the college application fees, it is important that we have a smart list of colleges, that we're not all over the place. And so that list should include colleges for which we believe our teenager sees themselves fitting in. That can't possibly happen at 15 or 20 colleges because more than likely they haven't visited 15 or 20 colleges. They haven't they're researched gonna, 15. They're going to go to one. Yes, and, and they're only going to attend <laughs> absolutely one. So in terms of the applications, help is needed for, help is available for families that need support around college application fees. And it's based on family income. Mm -hmm. Typically speaking, if the student has received free or reduced lunch throughout their life uh, or throughout parts of their educational career, they receive fee waivers from the College Board and from NACAC, the National Association of College Admissions Counselors. And so those fee waivers are available in the guidance office and students and parents should simply inquire about the fee waivers. There are limits to those fee waivers. In the city of Baltimore, if students attend a school staffed by a college-bound foundation advisor, then we offer fee waivers for students with a 2.5 or above grade point average uh, we, and that have 94% attendance or above, we offer fee waivers for all of the Maryland colleges. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a college-bound advisor at your Baltimore City Public High School, then speak to your advisor about college application fee waivers for Maryland colleges. Okay. All right. So we've got the college application. Um, we've got all the different parts of it. We've got the application, we have the, we have the transcripts, we have the letters of recommendations, we have the essay, we've paid it off, and it's May the 31st. Now I can send my application in. Okay. <laughs> it's May the 31st. You certainly may send your application to a number of community colleges, and there are, might be two or three colleges in the state of Maryland that are still accepting applications. So here's what we advise parents. Yeah, tell, us, tell us about the there are deadlines. Time, yes, there are college application deadlines. The first big deadline is November 1st. That's called the early action or early decision or priority deadline. University of Maryland calls it a priority deadline. The University of Maryland admits 90% of their 40,000 applications for the students who have applied by November 1st. Only 10% of their whole admission group of the 40,000 applications they read, only 10% of the admits come from applications that are submitted after November 1st. So it behooves the wise student 
to apply by November 1st. Is this is this this November 1st deadline? We're talking a national, uh, uh, a na- sort of somewhat that, of a, that is a national absolutely, deadline. Absolutely, absolutely. So there are a number of colleges throughout this country that have an early action deadline. I would say more than 50% have a November 1st early action or early decision deadline. So let's talk about those two phrases that I've just used or two terms. Early decision is this is the school that I will attend. You've done your research. You've gone online. You've read about the school. You've had conversations with the school's financial aid officers. You've used the net price calculator that's on every single college's website. And so you have a pretty good idea as to what it will cost out of pocket for you to attend the college. And so this is the school that I've decided that if I'm admitted, I will go. And it is a contract between the student, the school, and the college, excuse me, the school counselor. So if the student is admitted, it is a contract that this is the school that the student will attend. That's early decision. Early action, you apply early and you will receive an answer in December or January early, very much like early decision. So early decision and early action, you receive your answer in December and January. The difference with early action is that you can apply to numerous colleges early action, and if you're admitted early, you still have the option of not attending that school. You still can choose from among any group of colleges to which you've applied and, and you've been me, admitted early. Let me ask you about this early decision business. Okay, you, you're, this is a contract. So when you do the early decision, when you get your letter, your package, your admissions package saying, we have decided that we want you to be a part of the graduating class of 2022. We want you to be a part of that class. Are they also sending you a financial aid package as well? Uh, in many cases, the financial aid award letter is arriving right along with the admission letter of admission or within a week you will receive that financial aid award. Uh, so with, with early decision, so you, how can you really make an early decision if you don't know how much money you're going to get? So again, let's go back to that net price calculator. On every single college's website, there is, you can, you can hit the information bar and you will pull up the net price calculator in which you enter the family finances, your grade point average, your SAT scores, and your area of interest. And out will spill an estimate of the family's expected costs to attend the college. Out will spill any scholarships for which the student might be eligible and the financial aid on average that the student might receive. It's not completely accurate, but it's pretty, it's pretty close. Okay. And so it's important that every single family, whether you're doing early decision, early action, regular decision, every family should be looking at the net price calculator on colleges' websites. So we can find that in the, at the financial aid, um, the financial aid office uh, website within uh, the section of the website on the college? Uh, you'll f- just hit the information bar right at the, at the beginning of the website of the, of the college. 
every college has an information bar and you just type in net price calculator and out and it'll take you right to the link for the net price calculator on the college's website and so it could be found in the financial aid page it it varies by it's, school it's every it, site every school has but it every, on their but website. every school it's it's a federal law that every school has to have that because families need to know how much the school will cost before they or have an estimate or a guesstimate as to how much the school will cost before they choose to attend so we have the we have the early decision and we have the early action. Yes, and that's some November, schools... That's the November 1st deadline. That's correct. That's November 1st. And some okay. schools call the early action, they'll call it priority. Okay. So one last thing about the early action or priority. There are certain schools to which you will only receive scholarships from that school if you apply by the early deadline. And I'll use... a the example of the University of Maryland. I'll use an example, uh, the early deadline for University of Southern California is December 1st, and Towson University is December 1st. And so you will only receive institutional scholarships, scholarships directly from the college, if you apply by the early action deadline. Because you're saying that this is the school to which I want to attend, I'm serious about this school, and the college is saying, well, these are the students who we want. And we're going to offer them a generous financial package, including institutional scholarships. So that's that's not early decision. That's early action. That's early action. And for the early decision, it's the same thing. If you're applying early decision, they're going to include as part of their financial package to you any institutional scholarships. And so I'll use as an example uh, Johns Hopkins University and their relationship with Baltimore City Schools. So when students... Many of our students apply early decision to Johns Hopkins because they understand they've gone to the net price calculator and they've determined that if they are admitted, Hopkins will offer the most generous of packages, what the students love to call the full ride. But it's, it's, it's a combination of institutional scholarships and financial aid from the state and federal government. And is, is that, just an aside, is that financial aid... Include loans, or is this all grant money? Uh, it's with Johns Hopkins and with many of the uh, what we call highly selective colleges. They don't offer loans anymore. They they provide either institutional they provide institutional scholarships and grants from the federal government. They package the grants and scholarships together uh, because they want students to graduate from college Free without debt. having to without having any debt. Uh, but we'll get we'll get back to that. So then. And so we encourage our students to to apply to colleges early action or early decision because in the college access process, there are three seasons. And the first season that we've been focused on so far is the college application season. And so by getting college applications completed early, you can then focus on season two and season three. And we're going to get to season two and season three in a few minutes. But right now, we want to encourage parents and students, look for the early action deadlines or priority deadlines. If there is a school for which you know that this is the school you will attend, if given the opportunity, then you have an opportunity to make that decision with a one. You can only apply to one school early decision then definitely 
make that decision if it, you think it's a great fit for you. There's a regular decision deadline. Regular decision, decision deadlines are typically in January and February. Uh, and colleges get the bulk of their applications, quite honestly, from the regular decision deadline. We advise early action for a number of reasons, but we understand that students haven't really made a sound decision and they may need to put it off for the regular decision. So the key is to go to the college's websites and understand what are the specific dates for, for early decision, early action, or priority, and regular decision. It is most important to meet the deadlines. Colleges are unforgiving about failure to do so. If you fail to meet the decision, you've taken your application off of the table. The deadline. Absolutely. You must meet the deadline. And parents calling and students calling really doesn't <laughs> make a difference because they receive hundreds of parents calling, maybe even thousands of parents calling. And so the deadlines are the deadlines, and it speaks to the character of the student if they're not capable of meeting those deadlines. Mm -hmm. So I encourage everyone listening to this pod podcast to go to the websites, understand the dates, work with your counselors and teachers, and make sure that you have all of the documents submitted by the deadlines. Now let, let me ask you about that. Um, there, there's an idea of a completed application. There are some applications that are incomplete. Let's say, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with my SAT score and I want to take it again before I submit my application. Okay, so that's a great question. So if, you, if your intent is to apply early action November 1st, then you should have taken or you should take your SAT scores in October or August, and definitely in the spring for the, your first SAT. And there's nothing wrong with the first SAT score being submitted and you calling and letting the college know that another SAT score, I'm taking it November 1st, uh, and that score should be arriving in your office somewhere around November 15th, November 20th. Some schools will accept that. Many won't. And so, again, this is information that you should know, which is why, again, when we started out this podcast, we talked about taking the SAT in the spring of the junior year and taking the SAT in August or October of the senior year if you're going to apply early action or early decision. So, so we're looking at... However, and, and so you asked a great question and I, I, with this caveat. So if your score will not arrive in time, what some colleges will do is move your application from the early action deadline. They'll simply move it in with the group of students who are applying during the regular decision, and they'll consider your application during the regular decision timeline. Yeah, that's, so that, for example, the, the University of Maryland, that takes you out of that 90% of admissions. Absolutely. That takes and you out of the 90% group. it takes you off of the table for the institutional scholarship. That's absolutely correct. Okay. So, so back to this idea of a completed application. So that the deadlines that you're seeing on the websites are for completed applications, not partial applications, not 
Okay, my letter, here's everything, but my letter of recommendations are coming two days after the deadline. I hope everyone is, is hearing this very clearly, that the completed application, completed application consists of the form, the resume or activity list, the essay, the letters of recommendation from teachers and counselors, the SAT scores, the transcript, and the payment. Without all of those components in place by November 1st, Morgan State's is November 15th, Towson is December 1st, USC is December 1st. Without those applications, with all of those components in place, your application is late and will not be considered during those deadlines. And they're, and they're in unforgiving regarding that. And so this is a business. This is the business part. But also, it's an evaluation of whether the student can meet deadlines because college professors will have the same deadlines. The test is November 1st. The test is not November 3rd after you've had two extra days to study beyond what your peers had to study. If the paper is due on October 1st and you submit it on October 2nd, most professors will provide you with an F. And that's just the way so many things in life are. And so we understand that in the past, teachers have allowed you to hand in work late. We understand that there's been forgiveness around complete, you know, submitting your check for your loan. But in this case, because colleges are dealing, again, with 40, 50, 60,000 applications, they're not going to forgive lateness. Okay. All right. So... We've gotten through that, that first that first deadline, and we've gotten to the regular decision deadline, and we we're, we've gotten a, gotten through all of the the application and the deadlines. What else is it that we need to to know that can assist us with uh, this 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 whole maze of getting all of that stuff done? What are some of the pitfalls that we can avoid, and what are some of the some of the places or, or resources we can get help from? I always advise students to, first of all, the best help at that point is to call the colleges to make sure that they've received everything. Uh, ask the colleges, is there anything else that, anything other information that they need from me, the student? Uh, and then there's the waiting game. And that's, 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 that creates a lot of angst among our students. We see the anxiety in them. They, they walk around stressed. And so the, one of the ways of de-stressing is to burn the energy. And so there are two more parts to that, to get, getting into the college or gaining access to college that require a lot of energy burning. The first is completing the financial aid forms. And there are two types. So for the most part, the free application, and let me emphasize that, the free application for federal student aid can be found at fafsa.ed.gov. All students and parents must complete a FAFSA application. Now that's F-A-F-S-A? That's Fra correct. F as in Frank? The free application for federal student aid is called FAFSA. FAFSA, F-A-F-S-A, F-A-F-S-A, 
www.ed.gov. And it requires the student to know their name. And again, this year, I have a student who did not know their name completely and had it misspelled on the FAFSA application as compared to what was on their Social Security card. And so the best way for the student to complete FAFSA is to sit with their Social Security card and begin completing the application. Okay. Now, uh, now what? So, so we've gone from the application process of getting into college, um, and many families need assistance, need financial assistance to to finance the exorbitant costs of a higher education. In, in American society today. In fact, you so, know, you, that's the understatement of the day because <laughs> the, 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 the reality is that 99% of the families in this country need, <laughs> Some need kind of money assistance. in order to pay yeah. for college. So, so you're, so what are, what, let's, so let's sort of skip ahead. We get, we get the, the information back from the school. Yay, we're in. We're accepted. Um, I'm, I know from my own experience, there are students who receive acceptance letters and they get their financial aid package and they just can't afford to attend that. Right. And so we we cannot wait around for acceptance letters. And that's why there are three seasons. There's the college application season in the fall. There is the financial aid and scholarship season that takes place almost simultaneously in the early winter with financial aid and scholarships from winter through the summer. So let's talk about that while we're waiting for, because we're waiting for, for the colleges to provide an answer. That answer will will come out in January, February, March, and April. But while we're waiting, there's work to be done. We have to be able to afford college. So first, again, is the free application for federal student aid, FAFSA. FAFSA.ed.gov. Every family must complete the application. There's a student portion and there's a parent portion. Uh, And it gets pretty complex. So what I always advise families is to have a pen and paper and write down your username, your password, and your FAFSA PIN. And then you'll be prompted to create an FSA ID, a federal student aid ID. You can go FSA ID. Just Google it. It'll take you directly to the website. So that's your electronic signature and your electronic PIN. Again, username and password. Write it down so you will not forget. So but, so we're here we are. It's October. Can we do that now? You can do it. The, the website opens October 1st. So again, I have to caution because it gets complicated when Teenagers who are unfamiliar with all of these processes are trying to do two and three processes at once. And so what I advise families to do is to focus in the fall on the applications because the first FAFSA application is not due until January 1st with the University of Maryland, January 15th with most of the other Maryland colleges. So you get your applications done by that November 1st deadline even though FAFSA has opened on October 1st, get the applications done, focus on doing them extremely well. Again, the most challenging part is the essay. Then we move into FAFSA. And 
what you do is you work on your free application for federal student aid, which also requires W-2 forms from the prior, prior year. So, for instance, if you're applying for federal student aid for students who are graduating in the class of 2019, we're looking at the parents' income and the students' income from the tax year 2017, the prior, prior year. Which means, parents, by October, November 2018, you should have already submitted your 2017 tax returns. And that means, that's what we're using. That information is what's going on FAFSA, W-2 forms. Students, if you had a job, if you didn't have to file, you still need your W-2 forms from 2017 in order to put information on the free application for federal student aid for 2019-2020. Okay. So we're working on FAFSA, and we're keeping an eye out, if you're a Maryland resident, for the Maryland Higher Education Commission, MHEC, or MDCAPS, because the state of Maryland has money for families also, students and families that need financial support to pay for college. There's money from the state of Maryland. And so again, this is why I stated, get the applications done, because season two is financial aid season. You have the free application for federal student aid. You have MDCAPS, which has two very generous grants through the Maryland Higher Education Commission, MHEC, $3,000 for an educational assistance grant, or $18,900 for a guaranteed access grant for the most needy of families. And we're talking about per year. That's a lot of money. That's well, over $20,000. So coming back to the college applications, and let's not play around, parents. We know that our teenagers have visions of leaving home and going to colleges all over the country. But we want to have on our list of colleges, one Maryland college, Maryland State Public University, for which we know our child, our son or daughter, can gain admission. Because with the money coming, because the MHEC, Maryland Higher Education Commission money, through MDCAPS, that money can only be used for Maryland schools. And let's just use as an example that you qualify for the $18,900 per year from the state of Maryland, and you qualify for the $5,920 from the federal government through FAFSA. Now we're talking about $25,800. That will pay for any state public university in the Maryland state public ed higher education system. That'll pay for Morgan, it'll pay for Coppin, Eastern Shore, Salisbury, Frostburg, Bowie, University of Maryland, UMBC, Towson, etc. But more importantly, if you only qualify for part of that money, it still can only be used at state public universities. You know, you know, uh, Mr. Harrell, this is this is very useful information, and it's it's become evident to me that we need to do another another podcast. Yes. Uh, well, One I, on I'm, financial I'm, aid. I'm thinking, yes, yes, just the whole financial piece. But I'm thinking 
one on each of the three seasons. Right. So let's go back to, because it seems like this first podcast really is focused on college applications. And when we start creating our list of colleges to which we apply, there was one important step that I failed to mention. And I think it's uh, something that students, parents, and school counselors should have a conversation about. And that's based on our GPA and SAT scores. So when we're looking at students and we're thinking about colleges to which we're applying, we want to look at reach schools. We want to have our students stretch themselves and extend themselves to a reach college or two. Reach schools, and let's just use as an example, a student who has a 3.0 GPA. A reach school for a student with a 3.0 GPA might be a school from the Patriot League, like a Bucknell or a Lafayette or Lehigh. But a REACH school is certainly not going to be a school such as Johns Hopkins or Harvard or Stanford. And the reason is because Stanford, Hopkins, or Harvard, the median grade point average of a student who is admitted to those schools is a 3.8, 3.85. And so we need to know what is our unweighted GPA and what would put us in the category of a REACH school by looking at the median. Notice I didn't say the average. The median GPA, the 50% 50, 50 of the students. What is the GPA of 50% of your admitted students? So we should be looking at REACH schools because we certainly want our students to stretch themselves. And then we should be looking at target schools. So again, with that 3.0 GPA, what schools admit what schools have as their median GPA 3.0, 3.1, So where does our, our son or daughter fit in that median 50% GPA range? So that data is on every single school's website. It's information that's well known, should be well known by the students, but it's, all, it's out there for the colleges and they publicize this. So we should have one or two REACH schools, the bulk of the schools to which our sons and daughters are applying should be those target schools, the schools to which our GPA matches that median 50%. And finally, the safety schools in which our son or daughter's GPA is well above the median because we know that our sons and daughters can certainly gain admission and because we've used the net price calculator, we know that these are schools that our sons and daughters can afford. So oftentimes you'll hear from school counselors and advisors, well, we're sure your child can gain admission to that school. But the cost has to be considered because what does it mean to gain admission to a school, but you can't afford it? So safety means two things. I'm 100% sure I can gain admission and I'm sure we can afford it. Okay. And on, on that note, I think that's a, a good point for us to conclude this podcast and prep us for the next, next, uh, next one in the series, which will focus on financial aid, season two. Financial aid. Okay. Sounds like a great plan. And the third season, I'm, I'm assuming, would be... Scholarships. Uh, scholarships. Okay. Uh, scholarships. And we might have season number four, which is 
What, what happens what now that we <laughs> now that we've gotten in, we've gotten all the yeah. money. What's we call it? What's next? Okay. All right. So, um, well, thank you very much, Mr. Howe, for participating in the Watkins Education Report. The information that you shared is extremely valuable, and hopefully, our listeners will take advantage of all that you've had to share with your expertise, expertise, and almost two what four. Decades, four decades of experience doing this. That's a that's a tremendous about amount of uh, knowledge and and information that's very useful. Uh, as a disclaimer, I must add that Mr. Harold is a member of the board of directors of the Watkins Educational Institute, and Tony and I have been friends for a good number of those decades. A number of decades. <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, uh, thank you again for listening to the Watkins Education Report. And we'll be back again next month with uh, season two of the college admission process. All right. Thank you. You're welcome. And continue to teach the children. Peace.